Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hey, Shallow, I'm back. Thanks for um, having Christopher stand in for me in the meantime. Got to listen to that podcast. It was great. Thanks for doing that, guys. Absolutely. I'll say thank you for Christopher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I always enjoy hearing Christopher's thoughts. He's um, very a- analytical and also thoughtful and um, has a lot to bring in terms of interpretation of scripture and application. So I'm um, really nice to hear his input on it. So we're, we're nearing the end of the Book of Mormon here. <clears throat> We've only got a couple more podcasts to do with it, actually. So yeah. We've got chapter seven, eight, and nine, which I thought was kind of odd the way they split up the reading here because the podcast or the the section for last week was chapters one through six of Moroni, which is the shortest reading of all of the <laughs> Come Follow Me Book of Mormon manual. <laughs> yep. And then you get seven, eight, and nine, which is actually quite a lot of reading and a lot of material. So, you know, I, I'm not sure how they make the decision to divide everything up. Um, I might have divided it differently, but um, that discussion doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter 7, 8, and 9 are not actually the writings of Moroni. Moroni here is bringing in words of his father. So in chapter 7, this is a discourse or a talk or a sermon that Mormon gave at some point in his life. It seems to be at an earlier point in his life for several reasons we'll talk about. And Moroni somehow had access to the text of this, or at least maybe notes of this, and then he kind of fleshes it out as he's he's writing. I almost imagine that Moroni himself sort of just copied notes, and then um, some of the text might have been filled out by Joseph Smith. I don't know. <laughs> because we get a lot of things in here that are that are very Paul-esque, you know, Corinthians and, and, and New Testament-like. And so I, I almost see like Moroni outlining his father's talk, so to speak, that he heard when he was, uh, you know, young or something that his father gave. And then I see uh, Joseph Smith maybe coming in as he's doing the translation and and there being a little more fleshing out and flow of it. Again, I don't know, that's total conjecture, but it's a possibility it, just in terms of the wording and and very King James version-ish, you know, feel of it. Here then we get uh, chapter 8, which is a letter directly from Mormon to Moroni. So this is moving on at a little later point in his life. Um, we see a degeneration of the people. You know, in chapter 7, he talks about the people he's talking to as being the peaceable followers of Christ. And then in chapter 8, he's talking to Moroni about how, oh, there's disputations in the church and people are arguing over the doctrine. And he's he's very harsh 
in many points, it seems to me in chapter eight. I mentioned that it almost seems like there's a little bit of a dead horse beating going on <laughs> in chapter eight. Like Mormon kind of has an ax to grind about this doctrine and he wants you to know it. You know, he's like, this is something really important to me and you need to understand. <laughs> why. So I get that, you know, I have, do- I have very, um, you know, doctrines that are very near and dear to my heart and, and, and I will not let them be perverted. <laughs> so, um, so we get some of, some of Mormon's personality there. Um, very interesting and, and some really great little, uh, nuggets and, and, um, discussion about faith and mercy and baptism and, and covenants and so forth. And then we get to chapter nine, which is uh, right up there with one of the most uh, graphic and I don't know the word for it. What is this distasteful uh, chapters of the Book of Mormon? Just because of we get Mormon's description of some of the worst things that are happening among the people as they, uh, you know, full-fledged degenerate into awful wickedness. It's uh, it's not exactly clear why this is included, but I, again, I see it as this progression in the letters of of Moroni saying, "Hey, my father said a lot of uh, good things in this letter to me, and so I'm going to copy it here uh, for you guys, and uh, I'm going to give you a little taste of of how awful and wicked the people really are, and to let you know, you know that uh, what's going on is is definitely not uh, little league stuff." So that's kind of how uh, Nine ends out with uh, Mormon closing up uh, to his son. These are kind of the last words, I imagine, that that some of the last words that uh, Mormon gives to Moroni. And uh, Moroni felt impressed to to put them down here. Probably the last, the last little bit that he has on the plates, last little bit of room. And um, he's maybe getting old and, and uh, just wants to to leave the last words of his father, maybe reminiscing a bit, uh, who knows how long it's been since his father died. So that's kind of how I see the purpose of uh, Moroni here in including this. And it kind of helps us uh, feel a little bit more of, of his personality, his testimony, and um, and getting some good last little words in of, of Mormon even after his death. Yeah, I had a lot of the same thoughts too with chapter seven, because this is a really old sermon. Or maybe it was a newer sermon, but we get this flavor that because he's talking to the peaceable followers of Christ, this isn't the same experience he's having while out fighting a battle away from Moroni in chapter 9, right? So we do get the sense that this is an earlier sermon that's happened. And I think it's absolutely fascinating because we are seeing that Moroni and Mormon aren't the only two maybe righteous people that are there. Something that I think I've subconsciously seen in my mind before that the text isn't actually saying. But if he's there in a synagogue talking to the peaceful followers of Christ, maybe there's only five. Maybe there's 10 of them. Maybe there's 20. I don't know how many that are here. (laughs) It's early morning seminary. There's only, you know, whoever's (laughs) going to show up. (laughs) And so we have that. But then again, with nine, I I, I have it marked in the margin. I'm like, why this chapter? It's like, why was this written? And why was this included? Like, why did even Mormon write this to Moroni? Moroni has seen this you know, he's been in the battle. He's, he was there in the last, the final last uh, hoorah. So why why is this here? So that'll be fun to explore that. But in chapter seven, we begin here with this discussion that Moroni frames this by, it's a talk about faith, hope, and charity. And then he goes on to talk almost entirely about charity or about faith. It's really about faith with a little bit of tie-in at the end with hope and charity. We get like three or four verses of, of uh, hope and about charity. But in this, I couldn't help but notice that 
he's talking specifically to the peaceable followers of Christ during a time of absolute depravity and warfare. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting juxtaposition. I think it's something that we can't probably emphasize enough to see that there is a group of people who are truly peaceable followers of Christ existing during a time of complete cultural and social extinction. I mean, that's a really, really stark contrast to realize that goodness can still exist in that way, regardless of how the world exists around you. You can still be this way. You can still follow Christ. And then he starts going into, in verse 5, I remember the word of God, which saith, by their works, we shall know them. For their works be good, then they be good also. Well, this is the Sermon on the Mount language. In the sermon, it says, by their fruit, you shall know them. So here we're conflating fruit with works. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how Mormons seeing that. And then he goes off down in here, for behold, God has said, a man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. Well, again, this is also this is also sermon talk, right? So we have Mormon getting up here, talking to the peaceable followers of Christ, invoking at least Mormon's addendum of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we get into this discussion of faith. Now, as I was talking to you, Ben, we're going to get into this more heavily, but it is interesting to see just how much of the Beatitudes start towards the end of the chapter in verses 39 or so. But in the meantime, we have this structure that Mormon has brought up where he's like, listen, here's the grand key to the whole thing. I'm going to give you this grand key that you're going to know this, have perfect knowledge whether or not something is good or not. He's like, you guys ready for this? All right, so I'm, I'm going to give this to you. If you guys are, are really, really ready, here's the perfect key to know everything. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. Well, awesome. So then he has a test for evil. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they which subject themselves unto him. Well, that seems pretty cut and clear. But then I started coming up with these, these ideas. Well, what if you call like evil good and good evil? What if you start to say that Christ supports the the killing of your enemies or Christ supports, you know, vengeance or justice or, you know, if someone came in and murdered my family, would God just tell me just to like leave it alone or would God want me to go avenge? And so you can start to project a lot of things onto God, right? Hmm. And then and all of a sudden, Mormon's like, I'm, I'm ahead of you. And now my brother, and seeing that you may know the light by which you may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that you do not judge wrongfully. For with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So this really kind of gets back into the whole sermon talk and the golden rule thing. And I think it's a really powerful tool that Mormon's invoking because it's really turning, if you're not willing to accept a propositional statement, you bring it back down into a personal experiential moment. If someone's not willing to accept the platitude, then let's bring it down to a moment. And this is like what we do for children, right? If they don't, ex- if they don't like the rule, then let's take it down to a, a, a human experience for them. Do you like being treated this way? Okay. No, you don't like being treated this way? Okay. Then let's not treat others this way. And then the excuse is always, well, they treated me this way. Yeah. I'm like, all right. <laughs> let's start over. <laughs> Do you like being treated this way? No. Okay. Then don't treat others this way. I actually had this very moment. I distinctly remember when I was nine years old, I was living in Mission Viejo, California. I had a friend two or three doors down 
And it was Friday night, and it was getting later on at night. We used to play so- We used to kick the soccer ball across the street from each other and uh, try to score it and getting into each other's yard. And he had done something or said something that was really mean. I don't even remember what it was. I was nine. But what I do remember is that I came back in and I was incensed. I was so mad and I wanted to like retaliate and go tell him just what a horrible person he was and what a horrible friend he was. And I don't know, treat him how he treated me. I, I don't even remember what he, what he said or did, but just, I remember how angry I was. And so it was at that point, however, that my, my father sat down with me and I remember it was a Friday because they were going on a date together and they were getting ready and they were going out and there was going to be a, a babysitter and there was a babysitter that I liked and, and a friend that he was, he was really fun. And so I remember sitting there and having these conflicting, really strong conflicting emotions that I really, really, really wanted to do something mean to him. And I kept on turning it back where my father, my father was saying, Sir, listen, you've got to treat people how you want to be treated. Well, he treated me wrong. That's obviously how he wants to be treated. So I'm going to treat him that Can't way. Can't we start after I get my revenge? <laughs> then we can start with the whole... Then we start with the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And man, I, I did not accept anything that was said that night, but I remembered it. And it really became a foundation for me later on in my life as I've gone back to that moment to realize... Just how angry that nine-year-old was at some silly violation of a friendship that he felt and and of how he wanted to retaliate, but that always doing something good in back, back for evil really stuck with me. When we see Mormon here, it really is. He's like bringing this down to the level of a child. All right, let's start over, you guys. Whatever inviteth a man to, to Christ is good. Whatever inviteth a man not to Christ is evil. Whatever inviteth a man to Christ is good and is of it has good fruit to it. <laughs> and he's really trying to make this simple. And just like my mind was wandering and trying to find all the little caveats where you could possibly, you know, find the, the little addendums of of uh kind of the holes in this theory. Yeah. Then you have Mormon coming in and be like, all right, let's the just exceptions. give a the exceptions, right? Then let's give this really big catch all where whatever however you want to be treated, treat other people that way. Yeah, I mean uh- I think I like how he continues with that concept, though, in verse 19. He says, I beseech of you, brethren, that you should search diligently in the light of Christ, that you may know good from evil. And if you will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, you certainly will be a child of Christ. I think that kind of goes to what you were saying, you know, like you're looking through this and trying to look for all the exceptions, right? And that is actually kind of a type of searching in the dark. And I like how he says, search diligently in the light of Christ, as opposed to, you know, searching for all the exceptions, look for all the ways that you can bring Christ into your life, all the ways that you can bring good, all the things that can point you to him, um, rather than anything you can think of that might be some weaselly exception to this or that written rule. Here at verse 18, where he says, for with that same judgment, which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. I've always thought it was interesting this type of phrase, you know, gets put in the passive tense. He says, ye shall be judged. Well, you know, the implication, or maybe it's just the inference, not the implication from this, is that this is God doing the judging. But that's not what it says. You know, it's a passive tense. It could be anybody that is doing this judging. And I think it makes a lot more sense in terms of whatever critical eye we look at the world and others with, 
is the same eye that we're going to look at ourselves with and with which you're going to encourage others to look at us with. And so it's the judgment that we have of ourself and that others have of us or that we have of others. So the same judgment that we judge, we will also be judged. I think this concept that Mormon lays out is actually one of the clearest keys given in scripture about knowing what's right and wrong, just being able to make decisions in life. And you can just kind of lay it out. You can say, okay, does this thing, is this thing going to lead me closer to Christ, strengthen my relationship with him? Or is it going to lead me far away? Obviously, there's going to be more considerations after that. Maybe that doesn't answer the question fully, but that sure is a good place to start for any decision we're trying to make in our life. So I love this. I mean, I think it's spectacular, inspired, beautiful advice. I really do love that last part for with that same judgment, you judge shall you also be judged. I mean, Jesus obviously said this and he's repeating this, but this really becomes a fantastic foundation into this concept that we really do judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time we think, you know, there's this God who's above us and he's rendering out judgment and will he be fair? When the whole thing is about, I think it has more to do with epistemology than meta, than metaphysics. It has more to do with our perceptions of reality than actual reality. And we've talked about this a lot before. And I'm coming more and more to believe that the distinctions between a celestial and a terrestrial and a celestial, and a, I'm sorry, and a terrestrial world are far more about perception than it is about reality, like physical mm-hmm. locations. That- mm-hmm. We all occupy the same space, but basically where we've repented to, repentance is that changing of our perception to seeing God differently, to seeing each other. And this makes so much more sense to me. The reality we're choosing to live in. Exactly. Yeah. Because this makes so much more sense to me in regards to that old adage of like people from the celestial kingdom can visit those in the terrestrial, telestial, but the people in the telestial can't visit those in the celestial. Yeah. And I've never understood that. I'd be like, well, why? It makes sense in that that context and explanation though. Makes total sense. Right. Also the the assertion about- you know, receiving, I forget the words exactly, but in DNC 76, it goes into this and we could look it up, but receiving the presence of Christ or, but not the full presence of the Father and stuff like that, right? It's like, you know, you, you can get to a point where you, yes, you, you see the beauty of the gospel, but you just don't quite want to pick up your cross and follow him to the Father, right? And so, like, I kind of see that. I kind of see that, as you're saying, epistemologically, it doesn't have to be this like cosmologically separate location. It's, you know, our reality that we're choosing to live in. And there's this, I don't, I don't know if it's Chinese or, or, or Japanese. It's talks about chopsticks. <laughs> in any case, there's this story about how heaven and hell are actually the same place. And it's just, people that go to heaven, you go to this place and there's people who are starving because the chopsticks are so big they can't they can't feed themselves. And then you look over and in the same place there's people who are in heaven, so to speak, because what they're doing is they're feeding each other. 
with the same chopsticks that are too long for them to feed themselves. And I totally butchered the story and somebody needs to go look it up and get it right. <laughs> but the concept is the same. You know, I can, it, it kind of goes along with what you were saying there, that it's the reality we're choosing to live in rather than the reality that's actually around us. Yeah, that's right. I, and that's how I'm beginning to see it more and more. And I, I find that that's the reason why we can come from a celestial realm down into a celestial, because those who have truly emptied follow that beatitude path, as it were, that they are the ones who can truly empathize and sympathize. And they see that those in a celestial sphere have not emptied, that they live in their pain because they project that false self out in front of them, and then they live into it over and over and over again. And the people who've not taken the time to empty and enter that beatitude path, they can't comprehend the things of God. Just like the beatitude says that once you walk this path and you get down there and you're a peacemaker, don't expect the world to accept you. In fact, you're going to be persecuted because you're the salt of the earth. You're this experience. You're tasting this and having this experience that the world has never experienced before. And you can't even explain what it's like to be this way. You can't tell someone what it's like to taste salt if they've never tasted salt themselves. You can't express that experience and the flavor so as if they could understand it as, as if they've experienced it themselves when they haven't. And so in this way, the, the celestially minded person, someone who's come to that full experience with God and through that repentance process of seeing them anew, they can obviously see the pain in the other. They can see the world around them. They can see why people are operating the way that they're operating. And you have emptied it out to where you don't take anything personally. You don't take anything because you don't have any story to take personally. You've emptied all your stories. You've emptied all of those false meanings. You've emptied every false identity. You're just there in a perfect state in with reality in God. And it's like that whole thing is, you know, for me, I've never, I, some people are born with really just, it seems natural, innate talents and abilities that I, I, I almost envy a lot of the time. And so I've, you know, I, I look at myself, but for me personally, I know there's an experience of taking offense to something. And I know taking, you know, having offended is a, is a human emotion. It's just not one that I, I really can consciously recognize that I've experienced, but I accept that, that other people have that experience of being offended. But for me, I've kind of taken a stoic line in that either something was said or done that's true, and if so, why should I be offended? Or it's not true, and if case, why should I be offended? <laughs> it's, just, it's just one of those things for me that either is true or it's not, and if it is, then great. If it's not, then whatever. So by not taking offense to when something happens, for me, that experience has kind of been one of the foundational bedrock experiences that I've built my own discipleship on in recognizing that there at least exists because I can see it in that one specific way that there is a reality that exists that when we finally enter it and we've emptied out all of our stories from that world that we just don't take offense to anymore that we just don't take we're just not affected by it and so whenever a celestial person comes into a celestial sphere they're not affected by it they're not impacted by it so hence a celestial person can come into that celestial sphere and not be influenced that's not to say that I'm a celestial person. That's not anything whatsoever what I'm saying. I'm just saying on this very little microcosm, I've been able to catch a glimpse you get of how the this idea. can I, get, I, I can get at least a glimpse of the idea. Let's put it that way. In this way, with what judgment we judge shall we be judged, it's that we really do look at the other and ourself as much as we have emptied to see God anew. 
that really it all comes down to like Thomas Merton has said, and we've said over and over again, everything depends upon how we view God. However we view God is really how we view ourselves and how we view the other. And that's why repentance is so important. We're learning to see God in a new way and we see ourselves in a new way. So then this judgment that we judge ourselves and we judge the other is that judgment that we're judged because we're just living in that self-projected world that we create. In discussions about this concept with my brother, he said something about Zion and the attributes and characteristics and practices of Zion, the pure in heart. I think often we think about Zion in terms of, okay, you know, we're going to build Zion once people have changed their habits enough and they're righteous. And so then when we're all righteous, then we can have Zion. He says, no, that's not how we, that's not how we get there to Zion. How we get there is we forgive each other. We forgive offenses because it's much more likely that we're going to continue to quote unquote offend each other for a very long time, whether intentionally or not. And the only way past that is for us to be constantly forgiving each other. So Zion isn't a people that never offend each other. There are people that constantly forgive each other their offenses. Thereby, those offenses can be eventually completely dismissed, gotten rid of, so to speak. And uh, I, I think that way makes so much more sense to me in terms of what Christ is teaching us to do and what he teaches in his Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the victims, right? That those who build Zion are, are how do we respond to how others give offense? Do we take offense? Do we hold on to it? Or do we let it go? Do we forgive? Do we return love? And if we're constantly doing that, even if we're then sometimes offending others, if they will reciprocate that forgiveness, then we can all move forward. And I think that just makes so much more sense to me. That seems to be the way. Yeah, we've seen what the world's justice produces. We've seen what the world's sense of justice produces. We've seen what the eye for an eye justice does. We've talked about the Cain narrative. We've talked about how that starts. We've talked about all of that. The thing that hasn't been tried is the Sermon on the Mount, that giving good for evil. We want to balance the scales. We want to have this cosmic balancing. We want to be able to have everybody punished for exactly what they did. So long as they're repentant for it, as long as that they feel that they've come to it, that then at that point we'll give a little leeway. But the thing is, is this whole way of being, this forgiving way of being, we've said it before, but I imagine heaven is Saul turned into Paul, you know, renamed Paul, walking up into the gates of heaven and everyone that he was responsible for who was martyred comes out of heaven and, and embraces him at the gates. And they're the ones to welcome him in. If there's a gate... If there's this proverbial entrance into heaven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in that thought construct, that just like the anti Nephi Lehi's who go out and prostrate themselves onto the ground for and on behalf of their enemies, we hear this term all the time about how the blood cries from the ground against their enemies. And we've talked a lot about that with the Cain narrative about Abel and coming forward and God healing people and speaking our trauma. These are all themes we've talked over and over and over about. But I think it's important that we are because this is so 
countercultural to so many ways of thinking about God. We really do see this God that is, you're only in a good relationship with God if you're doing what he says. And if you're not doing what he says, then he's purposefully coming after you. And there's a lot of scriptures to support that narrative and to support that way of thinking. In fact, there's more scriptures to support that way of thinking than not. It's really for us to come along to recognize that some of the times scripture is far more descriptive of what people are going through than they are proscriptive about the nature of who and what God is. And what I mean by that is sometimes scripture is recorded in a way that this is what this particular person thought at this time, and they were just the ones writing it down, and it got preserved. And now we come along and we read it. I don't know where they were at in their particular time of life when they were reading that. I know I wouldn't want to have to be judged by things that I wrote 10 years ago, (laughs) and I really (laughs) hope that I'm not. And I think that, you know, that Hugh Nibley quote saying, I'm not responsible for anything. His was like two months ago or something like that. (laughs) He says, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not responsible for anything I wrote more than two months ago. I, I, you know, whatever I wrote down, (laughs) he's like, that's not me right now. Don't judge me by what I've already written. That's how fast I'm learning. (laughs) That's how fast I'm learning, right? That's how I'm trying to repent. And so in that same vein, when we see and we take a snapshot in the scriptures of who and what these men were at that particular time, a lot of the times we go through these psychological stages of adult development where we see God in a new way. I don't want my posterity to remember me by the things I remembered and I believed and I taught about God 10 years ago. I really want them to be able to really take this concept of a, of a merciful God and of them being in his love and being able to connect with God and actually have experiences with God. That's more of what I would like them to experience than some propositional truth statement that I wrote about 10 years ago. And so I think in a lot of ways, we have to give a lot of grace and a lot of mercy to those people in scripture. So yes, there's a lot of ways that we can come back down and and point at, at scriptures and say, well, they said it here and they said it here and they said it here. And it's true. There's a lot of these really transactional ways in which God comes out of the pages through these men at this particular time. But there's also this other side that's highly transformative. And so as we begin to move through the scriptures, we begin to see this new view of God and to see this new way of being. Oh man, it's just, it's so, it's so good. It's so refreshing and it's so peaceful as I've come into kind of seeing God in a new way and more of a transformational way where I see God as an infinitely always loving God who is highly proactive and always trying to get his children to see just how loving they are. And we're the ones who create all of these problems for ourselves. Yeah. And he's not coming after us to punish us. We're sitting here punishing ourselves. And at that point, he can't violate that agency. He, in a lot of ways, he can. He just has to sit there and look, but he can't manipulate us and bring us into it that the mystery of God, to understand the full mystery of God, it has to be by the choice of entering it in freely and willingly on our own accord. I think Moroni really, really brings this out pretty well. You know, back in Mormon chapter 9, he says, Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him. But rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. You know, just look at scripture as descriptive. This is our experience. We're telling you how we're experiencing God. I hope this helps you. Now go out and have your own experience so you can really learn who he is. And then we get to chapter seven, where Mormon chapter seven in Moroni, where Mormon says 
how we judge that. And we don't judge it by what the prophets say, he says. He says we judge it by who Christ is. And wow, that's a that's a really different way to put it. And so we can take anything we find in Scripture and stand it up against Christ. We can take anything we find anywhere from anybody that's preaching, stand it up against Christ. That's how we can see and learn and discern, gain a greater understanding of who we are, who the prophets are, and who God is. So you were talking about how you see God as this loving and merciful God, and a lot of times we live in our own false narrative of who he is, and we punish ourselves. And that God can't necessarily step in and change that all of the time, even though he is constantly reaching out for us. He can't come in and forcibly change that because that doesn't help us actually see him in a new way, right? That's contrary to his nature in terms of violating our agency. I really like how the book of Abraham puts it when it's talking about the creation. And there's this verse in there, it says, and the gods watched these things that they had ordered until they obeyed. And man, that is that is up there with profound scriptures for me. Yeah. Because even in the creation, God commands and then he watches. I love the word watch. You know, like sometimes I want to say, okay, so God waited. But you know, but waiting denotes like actionless. But I love the word watch there because like it's an expectant, a hopeful, a faithful, a loving type of thing. He wants to see. It's this great word that describes what God does. He watches for us to obey. And that's what he does. He's there. That scripture in Abraham, I think, really describes that well, the character of God. I've always loved that. I've always loved that verse too. And I love that you brought that in because that watching really does invoke such a sense of of wonderment and of patience and of love and care. It's more of a guardian than it is a... Kind of like someone who, this is my way, I created it, this is going to happen my way. But that patience in watching something unfold, as opposed to just making it that way, mm-hmm. really gives a great premise for us to be able to just sit with that. And what kind of God would then put things in motion and then just wait for it to obey? Man, I love that so much. Here in chapter 7, we kind of get a sense of that. I love how, starting in verse 20... He is starting to talk about how it is possible that we can lay hold of every good thing. Now that he's made this case that every good thing brings us to, that brings us to Christ is good and every bad thing that takes us away from Christ is bad, then how do we possibly comprehend a world where we are laying hold upon every good thing? He says in verse 20, And now, my brethren, how is it possible that you can lay hold upon every good thing? And now I come to that faith of which I said I would speak. And I will tell you the way whereby you may lay hold upon every good thing. And so now he begins, I think this is fascinating how Mormon starts because now it's like he's going to the beginning of how God ever dealt with man. God sent angels and then God sent prophets. And then it was that God actually reveals himself. And all of this is talking about the coming of Christ. Everything's pointing towards Christ. Mm -hmm. And Christ for me is also, is Jesus Christ. And that's the archetype and the apex of our humanity. Jesus Christ is the example of our humanity. But when I see Christ here, I'm also thinking in terms that God's whole purpose is for us to enter into that relationship of who and what Christ is, that Christ is the embodiment of God in human form that shows us exactly what it means to be human. 
And as we follow that, that Christ is so important from so many perspectives, but in this one, it really shows us the nature of our own humanity. It shows us who and what we are. It shows us what we're capable of. It shows us where we're going. This manifestation concerning the coming of Christ is also an unfolding of who and what we are. It's this blueprint and this archetype of who and what we can become. God showed us from the very beginning what it is that we should be, we can become. So then he gets in, he talks about faith that induces miracles and the ministering of angels and of the Holy Ghost and about how faith is what brings about repentance and baptism. If you're not seeing these things, first off, God is true and faithful. He's been at this from the beginning. He's demonstrated and shown us what faith is from the beginning through angels and prophets and even himself. And if we don't see the miracles, if we don't see the ministering of angels, if we're not experiencing the Holy Ghost, if we're not repenting and and having those experiences of baptism in our lives. Now, baptism we see is a one-time event in our life, but really baptism is just that symbolic dying over and over again, that we're dying to the things of the world. All of the things of the world are going away and that we're coming up someone brand new every single day. You know, you know, the I forget who said it. I recently read it, but it's the the concept that with everything that I learn and every new experience I have with God, there's a type of dying involved because the old me is gone. I will never be Mm -hmm. that person again. Mm -hmm. And so this is really leaving behind the old and it's coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't look back. Don't turn to the pillar of salt. Keep pressing forward, keeping your eyes straight forward to to that land like an ether, that land where no man has been before. God is always leading us into that new place that we've never been before. And it's scary because it's undefined. God is undefined in this way in our lives. We haven't seen God. He hasn't made himself physically manifest to us. We just feel this inner pulling into this mystery of who and what God is. And it just creates this strong desire of love and of peace and of contentment where we just we just keep on taking the next step in the darkness and it just lights up as we keep stepping into it until this faith brings us into this relationship with hope. And then he kind of finishes out the chapter with uh, with hope. You had found a few things about the Beatitudes. I'd found some things about the Beatitudes. I see them everywhere. In fact, when I was reading this tonight, <laughs> when I was reading this tonight- I see Beatitudes. My wife was making fun of me because I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I was reading and I looked up at her and I'm like, you won't believe this. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I'm reading Moroni 7. And she's like, well, I believe you're reading Moroni 7. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I said, Moroni 7 is all about the Beatitudes. And she started laughing at me. She's like, everything frees the Beatitudes. It's like you go to the store and you're like, hmm, ramen noodles. That has to do with the Beatitudes. And it's like, oh, we're going to go out here to this particular tree. I bet that has something to do with the Beatitudes. It really does, though. It's really colored a lot of everything that I'm reading through the Book of Mormon this time, but it really has been fascinating. So I love a few of the verses in here in the middle where it's describing Christ and the character of Christ. Uh, Verse 27, Christ ascending into heaven to claim of the Father his rights of mercy which he hath upon the children of men. Anyway, I just I, I think that's beautiful in terms of, you know, Christ's role towards us in extending us mercy so that we will know how to extend mercy to others. And here in verse 28, I've always loved this this phrase here, wherefore he advocateth the cause of the children of men and he dwelleth eternally in the heavens. This kind of goes towards the sort of uh, metaphor of the roles of of Christ and Satan and the Father in terms of a, a courtroom and a trial, right? As Satan is the accuser and Christ is our advocate with the Father. 
So our advocate along with the Father. I just like that, you know, his role is an advocate rather than an accuser. Christ is not there to accuse us. Yeah, the the way that the Beatitudes are woven into this is is really great. I see this almost as like Mormon's Beatitude discussion. This very well could have been some notes that Moroni took of his father's talk. He's fleshing them out a little bit, and then Joseph Smith might have fleshed them out even more, you know, in terms of his discussion about charity. I, I see that a lot. Mormon here is giving his version, so to speak, of the Beatitudes, and that's why I think you see that so much in there. These people that he's speaking to are what are called the peaceable followers of Christ. They're the people that have gone up on that mount, they've followed Christ up on the mount, and then they've sat down to listen. Here, Mormon is speaking to them. We get a very different tone in chapter 8, and then a completely different tone again in chapter 9. And here we're kind of starting at what we might term a celestial level. We then start to see steps down from there in these next chapters. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Definitely that step down. In verse 39, we have, this is really where I began to see the Beatitudes unfolding into it, because it says, And behold, my beloved brethren, I judge better things of you, for I judge that ye have faith in Christ because of your meekness. For if ye have not faith in him, then are ye not fit to be numbered among the people of this church. Well, I'm like, well, meekness? I mean, that's that's our third beatitude there, right? Like, that's just, I didn't have to think too hard on ding, that ding, one. Ding. <laughs> but I, I mapped it out differently today. You know, I, I did learn a few things here. And so I mapped out, I, you know, I wrote down the beatitudes really fast and I mapped out that the first three beatitudes really have everything to do with faith. That being that poor in spirit and the emptying and the letting go, you know, there's no reason to let go and go into an unknown world that you've never had any context to. I mean, everything in our human paradigm says, when something invites you into a dark cavern without context, don't go, right? <laughs> it's like, that's like the first thing that we should like give us warning signs. But yet, that being drawn in by the cloud by day, that vapor, that undefined God, something is pulling us to come into it. And that faith that we initially have at the beginning in this process. And so being poor in spirit requires before that faith to go through the mourning process of lost identity and of leaving everything behind, that requires faith. And to be meek and to, and to give up all of that, that all requires faith. And so I started realizing, wow, the first Beatitudes are all about faith. But it also says that unless you, are, you have faith and hope, then, or unless you have faith and hope, then you can't be meek. So meekness also has an element of hope to it. And then we follow into the fourth beatitude of being filled. And we have all these scriptures about being filled with hope. And that when God fills us, he fills us with that hope. And so that, that hope is a very much a transition between faith until finally we get into the verse 47, you know, the famous verse in 47 about charity, where this is very first Corinthians 13, Pauline, charity is the pure love of Christ and endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day shall be well with him. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love. So being filled there, I mean, that's the, that's also blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So we have the filling going on, all of which leads us up here, that ye may be the sons of God. Well, we already know that blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. Here we have the sons of God, that, that childlike relationship. And then to cap it all off here at the end of verse 48, 
it says that when ye shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. That's what it is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as he is pure. So there we have purity again. So just all of these really great associations, all of these concepts finding their way into the exact same verses and almost in the exact same order. So that whenever we read about purity, we're reading about seeing God. Whenever we talk about being filled, being filled with what? But now we're being filled with hope and we're being filled with this charity. So it really shows that the, this beatitude list is really taking us through this process of developing our faith into hope and our hope into charity to where finally when we're full of charity, the last beatitudes of being merciful and of being pure in heart and of being peacemakers, those are all completely and purely predicated on charity. You cannot have mercy, be pure in heart, or be a peacemaker unless you have charity. Or be persecuted and not revile. Yeah. You know, the last one. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Hmm. That does fit really well. That's, that is really interesting how it comes up. I, mean, I think it's just, it just kind of shows how it really is a blueprint for our spiritual development and growing into becoming and following Christ. That's the pattern that he sets forth. And so it finds its way into everything else because as people like Mormon are describing their experience, inevitably that's that's what happened because that's the archetype, right? That's the archetype of how that progress, that spiritual progression happens. It just finds itself in there naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything more on, on chapter seven? No, I think we covered it really well. I, I've almost wanted to stay in chapter seven a little bit longer because I read chapter eight and chapter nine, <laughs> it's like, oh, and I'm no, like, oh, it's just sad. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to read chapter eight and nine again. <laughs> yeah, so you know, chapter eight. This is a letter from Mormon to Moroni. So this is at a later point in his life. Again, chapter seven. It's not clear to us if Moroni was even alive at this time. Maybe Mormon gave this talk way early in his life when Moroni was either a little kid or or not born yet, don't know. But chapter 8 is a letter specifically from Mormon to Moroni. We're at a later point in Nephite history. You you don't have a discussion of peaceable followers of Christ anymore, right? We now have disputations in the church, and they're arguing over these specific doctrines. And Mormon's not happy about this. <laughs> we have this one verse, verse 8, which is the stated words of Christ on the matter. And then the rest of the chapter is Mormon's commentary on what he thinks Jesus meant by this. It's really interesting for there to be all of this commentary and discussion and assertion about it when we just have this one little verse of what Christ ostensibly says about this. Here's what Mormon says that Christ says, Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. You know, this is a recounting of some words that Christ gives um, on his mortal ministry when he is talking to the Pharisees, I believe it is. They are deriding him for hanging out with publicans and sinners. And he says, well, you know, I came to call the sinners to repentance, not the righteous, the whole you know, need no physician. And this is almost like a tongue in cheek, like, you know, you guys think you're so righteous. Why are you upset with me hanging out with them? Obviously, you don't you don't think you need my teaching. You already know everything. So I need to be with them to teach them. 
when in reality, you know, the Pharisees were at least as wicked, if not more, obviously because of their rejection and condemnation of Christ. Not all the Pharisees, by the way, actually, there were some really good Pharisees. And so it's sort of this interesting jab at the philosophy and an attitude of the Pharisees towards Christ. And, And I almost see that here a little bit in terms of, hey, if you think that you're so righteous that you don't need me, then okay. But when you recognize that you're not, that's when I can come in. That's when I can come and make you whole. It says, wherefore little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them, and the law of circumcision is done away in me. Later, Mormon talks about how little children can't repent. They aren't capable of repentance. And I think that's an interesting thing to say in light of how we've been discussing repentance lately. You know, because children, and I'm not sure what he means by little children here. You know, we have this, um, I guess, informed by scripture, but cultural assertion here that he's talking about anybody under eight, because we don't baptize under eight, right? Anybody who hasn't specifically gone around the sun exactly eight times. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's always kind of arbitrary, right? Obviously, it is an arbitrary number. I think it's silly to argue otherwise, um, but there has to be some sort of number, right? And the number is symbolic or representative of a what happens to us as we mature, grow older, and the world starts affecting us and changing our view of God and reality, so to speak, right? And what uh, we have Christ telling us here is that little children— little, little children, they have a correct and pure view of who they are and who God is and who the rest of the world are. And it's us and culture and society, and Doctrine and Covenants talks about this, that we're the ones that screw it all up. (laughs) (laughs) And we need to look to them as an example and let it go and repent and change and become as little children. It's really uh, one of the most profound and beautiful teachings and metaphors that Christ gives us for how we are to move in a path of discipleship towards him. Yeah, you know, I like that a lot. Because what you said here actually made me think of something I hadn't even thought of before. But I started to think about the Garden of Eden narrative and about the state of innocence that Adam and Eve were in. And it's been talked about that they were they were innocent like children. They were in a state of that innocence. They didn't know the good and evil. And while in the garden, they could partake of the tree of life. You know, we, we tend to think that the tree of life and living forever in their sin, you know, that's what you know. God says. We don't want to have them partake of the tree of life and have them live forever in sin as though it is the fruit of immortality. But more than being the fruit of immortality, there's a little bit of a different meaning there where we, every day of our lives, are eating from one of both of the trees. We're either eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we're seeking to eat from the tree of life. In order to eat from the tree of life, though, we got to deal with cherubim. Mm-hmm. You know, we got those four cherubim, they're facing north, south, east, west. But we got to go in there and we got to deal with cherubim. And cherubim's got this this wicked sword, right? Well, it's a good sword, actually. It's not a wicked sword. It's just a wicked, cool sword. <laughs> it's a righteous so he's got, sword. It's a righteous sword. It's righteous. So he's got this flaming sword. And this, you know, the symbolism here, obviously, we've talked about a lot, is to divide asunder, to cut away the false self and to purify. Mm-hmm. Because once we have this coming into past cherubim, you know, we partake of the fruit. 
We get a lot of really great analogy in the Book of Mormon with Lehi eating of the fruit because cherubim's not around. Yeah. We don't know if he took a vacation, but there's a lot of scripture. There's a couple of scriptures we've identified in previous episodes about how the word, the iron rod is also another figurative, is another figurative example of cherubim there. In that you follow this word of God, you follow this path to, to the love of God, to experiencing eating in the love of God. So we do this every day of our life. We either follow the word of God, the iron rod to the tree of life, or we partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this gets into a lot of philosophy, you know, a lot of the different ideas about dualism and opposites and about epistemology, but that's a different discussion. When we talk about having the innocence of Adam and Eve in the garden, coming back into the Garden of Eden is a type of cutting away everything that happened by eating the fruit of the knowledge of tree of good and evil. That whole seeing the world by their opposites, that whole seeing the world in a different epistemic black and white, but by just by coming into that moment with the love of God, that singularity of the love of God, we have to come back into a state of innocence. And we can't do that while partake also partaking of the other tree. We have to go through that purging, sanctifying process of going past cherubim or holding onto the iron rod. So what I love about this when it says that little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin, there's this... Uh, quote that I found, it wasn't David O. McKay, but it was, it was from another author that basically says that sin is anything that takes you away from God. That relationship between you and God is sin to you. You know, a lot of the times we think of sin as just the breaking of the law, that there's a standard, there's a propositional standard or statement, Mm -hmm. and you either adhere to it or you don't. And if you don't adhere to it, then you're breaking the law and you sin, or you do adhere to it and you're being the law and, and that's not sin. But the whole point here of Whatever sin is, is supposed to be whatever takes you away from seeing God in a new way. Anything can become sin. Anything in our life can become an idol. The scriptures themselves can become an idol to me if I start to rely upon my own interpretation of scripture and scripture from there that I don't allow God to work within me to allow me to change to see him in a new way where I enter that relationship with him. If I put anything between me and my relationship with God and God revealing his will to me, and me following it, that's an idol. Anything can be an idol. So in this state of innocence, we are all trying to become like children again. That state of innocence, that state of of Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden before the knowledge of good and evil. Emptiness too. Yeah, that empty, exactly. Wherefore, the curse of Adam that happened from that whole falling that he chose to partake of dualism, of coming into the world and seeing the, everything by their opposites, like Lehi talks about, that becomes our epistemic framework by which we see the whole world. And the whole point is to go back in the state of innocence, not because we've abandoned all of the things that we've learned along the way, but we begin to just sit in the love of God and to recognize that we've emptied ourselves from everything that is our false self and not of God, and we've simply allowed God to fill us with everything that he is. And so when I read this, yes, because I, I was trying to find application to it because I'm like, you know what? This is a very, like, like you were talking about, this is a very nuanced, like, why do we even have this anymore? There's still a couple churches around that talk about this, you know, you know, you know, Catholics and, but this is not really a big deal anymore for us, right? Whenever we have this discussion, I look at this as more of coming into this need for us all to come back into that state of innocence. I see this verse eight because there's several different statements here. I I counted five. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So sin is those actions which arise out of the false self, the false self being our false identity that we're we're supposed to repent from. That the whole world 
need no physician, but they that are sick. Well, I'm sick. I need a physician. So this is for me. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. That's what I'm trying to get back to. That ones that are not capable of committing sin, those things that act in their true self, like children act in their true self. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them. See, I want to get back to that state where the where Christ's atonement applies to me, like children. Going back to a state of children where that atonement applies to me, to that state of innocence, the state where I leave all of the false identities behind, and the law of circumcision is done away. Okay? That circumcision also symbolic of the cutting away and, and everything that goes along there. It really is going back to that state of, for me, verse 8, and this... This whole discussion of infant baptism, I think, becomes so applicable to us in kind of our beatitude discussion in verse 8, that that verse 8 really kind of brings us into this full conversation with God in that Garden of Eden myth narrative. Yeah, and, and there's several principles that uh, really come out of this beyond the don't baptize children that are really, really important for us to understand and apply to ourselves. And it gets into the concept of works and faith. You know, he says over in here that uh, in verse 23, it is mockery before God, denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and putting trust in dead works. So in other words, just performing this action on a baby as if it's in and of itself does any good, as if the performance of the ordinance is more important than the actual experience and changing of the heart and conversion that happens when we come to Christ. And that's why it's kind of a mockery, because it's denying the actual conversion and putting 100% emphasis on the simple performance of the ordinance when a child can't experience any of it whatsoever. And so even, even when we talk about having an ordinance as a way into experiencing and then arriving at conversion— a child can't experience that at all. So it's what we would just call dead works. And so it denies the whole process by which God changes our hearts and helps us become like little children because it is simply focused on the action. There's zero emphasis and a complete rejection of the actual conversion. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love how he describes the process here. This also kind of gets into some beatitude stuff here. In verse 25, the first fruits of repentance is baptism. This is back to Mosiah 18. You've all repented. What have you against being baptized? You're right. We've repented. Let's do this as a commemoration of our experience. And baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments, and the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sins. And the remission of sins bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart, and because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love, which love endureth by diligence unto prayer, until the end shall come when all the saints shall dwell with God. Again, I think Mormon's sort of analog of a beatitude type of discussion. Yeah, I had actually written a lot of that too. You know, that being that repentance and baptism. Baptism is a symbolism of being poor in spirit. And sin really is just the manifestation of the false self. It's those actions that we live in when we haven't truly emptied. I've said this before a bunch of times. I still think about it probably every other day. But a few, you know, several months ago, my wife had asked me about 
to think about certain moments in my life and then to ask me what choices would I have made differently if I if I knew I truly knew that I had always already been loved what would have been different what actions would I have taken differently as if to ask what actions did I take because I didn't already have that root relationship with God? And the answer is, I think all of my sinful actions have always been done. All of them. <laughs> like, all of them? How much time you got? That's right. It, but it really has, and I've really pondered on that over and over again. Because that really has sunk into me that the more I have, I've, I don't know if I so that I want to chase after it because it's, it's like the more you really try to like find it, it's like sand slipping out of your fist. I don't know if you ever had that moment where you try to take mm. sand and squeeze it in your hand, and the harder you try to squeeze it, the the easier it slips out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and it's like that for me. It's like the more that I try to chase God, the more it, elusive it becomes. But when I just sit there and I let it go. It just, a lot of it pours in. And so that really has become that emptying for me and that uh, the fruits meet for repentance and baptism, baptism being just symbolic of that whole process. So now that we have sin being the extension of the false self, now the remission of sin is, we talk about it in terms of like sin actually doing physically something physical to you. And I've often wondered like, how offended is God in that when I do something bad, he's offended at something bad I did? You know, I'm the one who sinned. How did it hurt you? So why are you forgiving me for something that I did bad to myself? Mm-hmm. And it's like me touching a hot plate and getting burned and my parents coming along and saying, I forgive you. I'm like, well, <laughs> like, I'm the one that got burned. I mean, I didn't do anything to you. I mean, I guess you had to come in here and do that. But God's work and glory is to bring the immortality and eternal life of man. It's like, this is his job. This is what he's doing. Why is he? Why? Yeah, he gets paid for this. <laughs> yeah, he gets paid for this. <laughs> oh, man. So when I see this in a different way, now I'm seeing that God's forgiveness is not so much that he's been offended or that he has something to a debt to alleviate in as much as I don't think God's ever offended. You know, I, I know the scriptures talk about it in th- that kind of term sometimes, but it's offended. Being offended means that you expected it to be one way and it turned out to be another. Something was supposed to be one way and it, and it ended up being another. And God doesn't live in a reality of false expectations. He doesn't live in a reality where he's like, doggone it, Shiloh, I thought you were going to do better today. I mean, he already knew. <laughs> just is not, that's not the way God exists. Things like disappointment and, and anger and resentment, it, those human emotions happen because we, in our limited knowledge, expect it to be one way and reality turns out to be another. And we don't like to live in reality. We like to live in our stories about reality. And then we get upset and have emotions when it doesn't turn out the way that we want. But that's not God. Because he knows it already, right? And so we have to kind of start to reevaluate, even if logically at first, that a lot of our stories about God just don't add up. When we start to see God as a different kind of being, uh, then, then we can start to see ourselves differently. And that really has been a lot of my case where this remission of sins has been more of God sitting down next to me and saying, yeah, I... I see who you really are, and I see how you think you are, and how you think you are isn't really producing the kind of fruit that you really want to produce. 
that forgiveness really ends up being more of my perception because once I begin to turn my view back to seeing my true self, and then I'm sitting there next to God and, and God looks at me and he's like, yeah, that, that kind of feels better, doesn't it? I'm like, yeah, it does. He's like, yeah, it does. And that that alleviation, that liberation is the same kind of feeling I get when I, I know I've injured somebody and, and I feel so bad that I've injured somebody and they give me that release in forgiveness that I know that they don't hold anything there against me. That feeling and emotion of being released from another person's ill intention, I feel that same kind of emotion with God when I feel like it's almost like an embarrassment where you start to realize, yeah, I was, I was living in this reality that wasn't true. And God's like, yeah, you were. But having that release where I know that he's not thinking anything worse of me for it. And I turn to him and all of a sudden that weight is gone of all of the consequences and, and the thought and the, and the, the justice and the balancing and everything that I thought had to be entailed in all of this. And all of a sudden there's just this release from God. It's the same kind of human emotion as forgiveness. And so I can really understand how we've constructed these this language in God forgiving us as we've experienced letting go of our false self. We use this language of forgiveness, but I, does God really forgive us? Because have we really offended God? I don't think God's offended. I really think it really has to do with our just letting things go and turning to him and trying to work out these emotions and put language to the emotions we're feeling. Well, I see it as the process whereby he teaches us how to forgive. And so when we get God's forgiveness, it's not maybe in the grammatical sense him forgiving us as much as it is him giving us forgiveness, right? So he's he's giving this capacity to us. Once we've repented and we've seen him, all of a sudden we can now see others in a different way and forgiveness becomes part of our nature like it is part of his. It's not something that he has to decide, okay, you know, I guess I'm going to forgive you now because you've said X number of prayers or, or whatever, right? It's just, a, it's just a part of his being because of who he is, because of the charity that he has. So it's, it's, a, it's a characteristic, an attribute that he can impart to us. And that's how that process happens. I see, you know, as we go through that, then we come to learn what forgiveness is. And that's how we can then give that to others, so to speak, right? Impart that to others, realize that there's nothing for us to be offended about in others because we have the love within us that God has within him. And so all of a sudden, you know, that forgiveness becomes a part of who we are. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> 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 on chapter nine so ben uh chapter nine i i've struggled to wonder like why was this chapter included um why did mormon write it why did moroni include it i mean and, and i think the easiest question to answer there is why moroni included it if not for some gospel aspect that i'm missing if not for the fact that i really can so easily perceive moroni walking around alone having maybe a person a few personal effects of high value to him such as maybe a letter from his father at one point or some kind of message and him just sitting down at some point and and having this mean so much to him that he includes it yeah and, I, and i'm completely happy with that 
I think there's a lot of, there are a couple good things here, but this chapter is, it's really kind of harsh because you have, I wonder kind of sometimes why Mormon included it because Moroni supposedly had seen the depravity of the Nephite people already. So why is Mormon rehashing it? If nothing else, then maybe Mormon is going through a moment. It is so traumatic to Mormon that he needs to speak his trauma and he needs someone else to listen to it. And so the best thing that he's got for someone who can empathize or understand that is his son. And that's the best I've been able to come up with is just that Mormon is speaking his trauma and that's the only person he can speak it to who can understand. Well, I actually think that's a pretty good explanation. And it also would explain why Moroni included it. You know, Moroni experienced a lot of this as well. And he's got to sort of process it. And he has nobody to share it with, right? So he he knows, though, that he, this is sharing it with someone. And so for him to be able to write it down and pass it on in some way is a type of release for him to know that he is sharing this with someone and other people will know what happened. Also, there's a little bit of um, the concept of it is better for us to pass through sorrow that we know the good from the evil type of thing. We've just had these this discourse, especially in chapter 7, about righteousness and faith and truth and the fruits of this. This life, a lot of our experience is about experiencing these contrasts and opposition and things and understanding what that means and, and why why we're in a reality of such. And so we have this chapter that is basically this this balancing act, so to speak. Okay, I've I've talked to you of righteousness and and now I'm gonna show you, you know, this this is what the world can be like without Christ. Um, this is how bad it can get. Don't fool yourself into thinking that it can't get this bad. It really can. People really can be this wicked. And the way they get this wicked is by rejecting Christ. And that's the end of the road there after you reject Christ. This is where it goes. And it seems a little, you know, it seems a little harsh and and maybe a little extreme, but um, uh, like they see a, more of a matter of time and degree as it, as it happened with the people of Nephi. It's kind of this warning to us. Yeah, that makes sense, especially with what you said about Moroni. Maybe even Moroni's including this was his own speaking of a trauma. It's He may not have had someone to personally speak to, as Mormon didn't have someone to speak to, but if he's putting it in the record, then at least he's letting this come out. He's letting this voice be heard. And I think there's some evidence here in verse 20 when it says, And now, my son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Behold, thou knowest the wickedness of the people. Mm-hmm. So there's this awareness that Mormon knows that Moroni knows that this is just the way things are. This is nothing new for Moroni. So yeah, I think that verse there helps show that. Yeah, we're not naive of the fact that these people are completely degenerate. We're not fooling ourselves in, into thinking something is is true that isn't. We have our eyes wide open. We see what's going on around us. As he says in the beginning, we are still choosing to labor diligently notwithstanding their hardness, he says. This is our job. This is our calling, notwithstanding what's going on around us. Now, I did have to laugh a little bit about verse 21. Behold, mm-hmm. my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually laughed when I read that. Bit. It's like... <laughs> I was like, he goes on to describe the single worst scene in the entire Book of Mormon and the depravity that's never been described before. And then just this one little verse, I can't recommend them to God. God would smite me if I did. 
like yes i guess so <laughs> i also verse 22 and behold my son i recommend thee unto god and i trust in christ that thou wilt be saved and i pray unto god that he will spare thy life now this is where i, I think it's kind of funny i pray to god that he will spare thy life to witness the return of his people unto him or to their utter destruction and i read that for the first time i'm like wait what He's like, I pray that your life is going to be spared so that you'll either get to see the people repent or be completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> like, that's kind of a, so that's you get really to see what got happens. to be, a, yeah, yeah, it's got to be really meaningful for someone who's been in this situation to try to see the unfo- the final unfolding of the people, that God will preserve them for that long. I just, that kind of way of thinking doesn't, I, I, I don't exist in that way of thinking. I live in a, I live in a, a neighborhood that's not full of urban warfare or of, of that kind of complete social extinction. So when I don't have to think about writing a, a letter to my child, wishing that they will stay alive either as everything is completely destroyed or until everything, everybody repents again. It's just a very interesting perspective to be able to be Mormon and write that. Well, you know, one of the stated purposes here that, that Mormon gives in the preface and, and so forth is that this record would come unto future generations. And there seems to be this little bit of hope within him or thought that it's possible, the sort of perhaps, right? That um, even with as wicked as the people are, there may be some little remnant of them that will survive. He says in verse 24, if it so be that they perish, we know that many of our brethren have deserted over into the Lamanites. And many more will also desert over unto them, wherefore write somewhat a few things. So there's a little bit to unpack here that I was thinking about just in this sentence, because the idea here is, this actually goes back to something we talked about in another podcast. There's a little essay called Isaiah's Job. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you should. Um, It's like an audio essay. You can listen to it. And basically, it goes into the concept of how Isaiah, he basically was told by the Lord, go and preach repentance unto the people. They're not going to listen to you. Um, (laughs) So it's not going to do any good. But there's going to be some people who, when everything is destroyed and and, because they're all wicked and everything and everybody gets destroyed, there's going to be some people that are going to look back and they're going to remember what you said. And those people are the people that are going to repent and they're going to come back and they're going to rebuild and things will be better. We see this pattern that actually happens in the book of Ether with the Jaredites. You have a people who become very wicked and they are almost completely destroyed. And then like this one little sliver of people, remember there's prophets that come and the people do turn and come back to righteousness once or twice in uh, among the Jaredites. So I see a Mormon maybe almost sort of hoping that this will be the case. Maybe now isn't quite the time for the utter destruction of the Nephites. Maybe we do still, can still squeeze a few more generations out of these guys. (laughs) (laughs) And if so, Moroni, you know, write what you can. It's going to be in a language that the Lamanites won't understand, but the Nephites will. That's important because they'll be able to then translate it or understand it, and they'll be able to share that with the Lamanites. And so that's why it's important that some of the Nephites, quote-unquote, our brethren, have deserted over to the Lamanites. If there were no Nephites left, and there's not really any chance that this record would ever be able to be read potentially by the Lamanites at all. Of course, I'm I'm sort of inserting into this some, some before Christ uh, Book of Mormon culture, because it could be that by this time their language really 
isn't as different as it was before. So I don't know. There's conjecture here and probably a lot more discussion would need to happen. But I just like this concept that Mormon is still kind of hopeful that there might be a chance, <laughs> you know. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> and and if there is, doctrine of perhaps, you know, Moroni, you that's your job. You know, do what you can. Write every testimony and witness that you can that perhaps some of them might read it. It turns out that it's not for that generation. They don't end up getting it. But, you know, we do uh, many generations later. But Mormon is still hopeful and working towards that purpose. I think that really bears out here. There really is a hope in Christ when we have really let go of the things of the world. And I think you have to, in Mormon's case, when you see everything falling around you, you've got to grasp a hold of something to sustain you. And in this case, we can obviously see that Mormon and Moroni have chosen Christ to do that. I mean, that's the whole message of the Book of Mormon, to see that this man in the turmoil of the complete destruction of his people has given us the Book of Mormon, has given us this record, that that's the perception and the narrative of a man who has witnessed the complete destruction of everything. Blood, horror, depravity, of absolute worst kind, everywhere, his entire life. From the time that his father took him up in his arms and carried him away, he has lived in the just away from everything, trying to, to lead him away from war. His entire life has been in this war. And yet we get the Book of Mormon text from a man who that has been his perception his entire life. How does a man who has lived that way, who has existed among those people doing those kinds of things, narrate this kind of text? There has to be something completely different about that man and something that he is grasping a hold of to give us what he has here. So when Moroni and Mormon say, hey, listen, don't don't mock us because of the things that we've messed up in. Give us a little bit of leeway. For me, there's a huge amount of grace and of charity and of and just just giving everything to these men who were able to produce this. Because when you have that kind of depravity around you, to be able to write, my son, be faithful in Christ. And may not the things which I have written grieve thee, to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his suffering and death, and the showing of his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering and the hope of his glory and of eternal life, rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God and the Father, whose throne is a high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. That was it. That, that's what Mormon is grasping a hold of. That's what makes Mormon different. That's what gave Mormon the power to do this. That's his final bidding farewell to his son, as at least as far as we have here in the text. He says, I've got some plates I need to deliver to you. Maybe he had some extra words for him. But we really get the sense that every letter they think could be the last. Mm -hmm. So it's like really the end of every letter is your kind of your final farewell. Yeah, we get lots of farewells from Mormon and Mormon. <laughs> we, get, we do. We, we get well, a I mean, lot living of living in the society, they don't know if the next time they go out to battle, they're just going to die, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. So it's absolutely fascinating to see the character of the men who lived through these kinds of things that they produced what we've been talking about through Come Follow Me this whole year. It really is a wonderful capstone to this entire work. And I don't know, maybe that's maybe the glory. If we really see chapter nine, we end with the complete and absolute depravity of people in the end of the book. 
all of this that we've read the entire year, everything that we've read through the Book of Mormon, all of the glories, the successes, the beauties, the the failures, everything comes down to this second to last chapter in the Book of Mormon where it says, here's the absolute depravity of our people. But even then, even then, be faithful in Christ. Even in the worst, darkest part of your life, when everything around you is crushing down, be faithful in Christ. And I think that can be a very good ending to chapter 9. I, I, I'm going to take that away from chapter 9. That's why I think they included chapter 9. <laughs> Agreed. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. Appreciate you. Thank you for all the support. We will conclude next week with Moroni 10. It's exciting. So next year, we're going to get into the Doctrine and Covenants and church history. That's going to be a great discussion as well. I'm looking forward to everything that we'll talk about through that. Moroni 10 is always a fun treat. I'm looking forward to a lot of the, the gifts that it talks about and of the Book of Mormon and just some great stuff. We'll have a great discussion there. Yeah. But until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. 